From the Partnership for Public Service, you're listening to Transition Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at presidential transitions. I'm David Marching. Today's episode of Transition Lab is a little different. We're not doing an interview today. We're going to share an event that took place two weeks ago that the Partnership for Public Service co-hosted with the four presidential libraries from the last four presidents, George W. Bush, President Clinton, George H.W. Bush, and President Obama. Their libraries collaborated with the Partnership for Public Service on this event. We also collaborated with the UVA Miller Center, which is one of the premier institutions in the world covering the U.S. presidency. At this event, we had the most senior, the largest, and most significant event ever, we believe, to focus on smooth and effective transitions, transitions that occurred in a crisis and also the shift from campaigning to governing. And we thought this panel, which was the second panel of the day, was really, really fantastic and wanted to share it with you. This panel was moderated by Melody Barnes, who's now at UVA, and during the Obama administration served as President Obama's top domestic policy advisor. Steve Hadley, who served as National Security Advisor to George W. Bush during his presidency. John Podesta, who served as White House Chief of Staff under President Clinton and also chaired President Obama's 2008 transition effort. Presidential historian Barbara Perry of the University of Virginia and Lisa Monaco, who served as Homeland Security Advisor to President Obama. If you'd like to hear the other two panels, you can find a link to the full event in the podcast description, or you can search Talking Transitions on YouTube. I hope you enjoy this, and I hope you learn as much as I did. I am thrilled to be here with you all this after this morning. We've got a wonderful panel to talk about some really important issues. I want to thank the Center for Presidential Transitions for all the presidential foundations and centers, and the Miller Center for putting this together. You know, it feels for me like January 20th, 2009 was just yesterday. I remember after taking what was probably one of the worst White House ID photos possible, um, making my way to my brand new office in the West Wing. The parade was just getting started outside. And when I walked in that office, the phone was ringing and the person at the other end had a substantive question. And I raise this example because government never sleeps. And in these unprecedented times, in times of economic and political crisis, when the stakes are particularly high, the 75 plus days between an election and an inauguration are extremely important to prepare a new administration to begin its work. In fact, those days one could say are barely, barely um, sufficient they're absolutely necessary and they're absolutely critical. So this morning we've got with us a panel of experts who can help us understand the importance of a transition in highly unprecedented times and a panel that brings a great deal of expertise to the table because of their previous work. And I want everyone as we have this conversation to remember that in the days of a transition, in the early days of a new administration, unexpected things happen that layer on top of the, the crises that a new administration is already facing. Operation Rescue, Restore Hope in Somalia, um, Waco, the Inauguration Day bomb scare, all of these things happened during a transition or during an early days of an administration and we want this panel to help us to understand how you prepare to deal with those kinds of challenges. So with us this morning, we've got Barbara Perry, who's the Gerald L. Belisles Professor and Director of Presidential Studies at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. We have Stephen Hadley, who was George W. Bush's National Security Advisor. Lisa Monaco, who was President Obama's Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor and John Podesta, who was counselor to President Obama and chief of staff to President Bill Clinton. I want to thank you all for being with us this morning and looking forward to diving into the conversation. 
And, and with that, Barbara, I'd like to start with you um, as an historian, as someone who can help us put this in a little bit of context. Thank you to everyone for uh, putting together this wonderful panel to all of our partners. And I want to leave plenty of time for uh, the true experts on this panel, including yourself, Melody, who have participated uh, in transitions and, and in administrations. But I think my role was to uh, talk a little bit about uh, transitions historically. And one caveat is I've, I've not studied all 44 presidential transitions in depth, but I, it did occur to me that there may be two ways in which we're using the term transition. And one is the obvious one of the handing over of the reins uh, and the development of a new administration, and particularly in the modern era from FDR onward, uh, where we have a situation that uh, the bureaucracy has proliferated from the Franklin Roosevelt New Deal period onward. So even more important to be populating uh, a vast uh, federal bureaucracy. So in some ways, it's even more important in that modern era from Franklin Roosevelt onward. But it also occurred to me that we think about transitions uh, not only internally about how the reins are being handed over and how the administration, the new administration is being populated or in the case of a second term, uh, the turnover that the first panel talked about that's actually quite necessary uh, to uh, repopulate uh, an administration, but also that I think we think of it in terms of transition, particularly if there is a crisis underway. And so the uh, the wonderful essay that uh, Bill Antholis and David Marchick have put together, where they have looked at five crises situations, five political crises and five economic crises uh, in history where transitions have happened are very helpful. Uh, and and so I was asked to, to think about, well, what, what, were those, what was the best transition in history and what was the worst? Well, it's usually easy when you're talking about anything related to the presidency and a president coming into office in terms of the worst situation is the Civil War period. And obviously that transition from Buchanan to Lincoln where the country is literally breaking apart and sliding into civil war has to be the worst. So we, we hear about Lincoln setting up his uh, team of rivals, the, the famous Doris Kearns Goodwin book and, and the movie made based on that book, uh, that Lincoln was trying as hard as he could to put together a team that even included his rivals or rivals among the, the, the various factions in the United States, and, and we give him credit for that, uh, and yet the country slid into civil war. So the number one challenge that any president has faced coming into office. Um, I suppose I would pick as, as, a, as a good transition and also a, a historical uh, pattern, if there is if there can be a pattern established, would be the fact that uh, the Reagan to Bush 41, uh, there have not been many sitting vice presidents who've succeeded uh, in being elected president. Uh, I think it was Martin Van Buren was the most recent one up until Bush 41. But I, I think it's helpful, obviously, if there has been a vice president under a president and you go from the same party to the same party and that vice president can carry forward. Obviously though, there were differences in the party. Bush 41 was viewed as more of a moderate and uh, there was some skepticism on the part of the Reagan wing of the party about Bush 41. So there was that issue, but um, S Steve Hadley has participated in this wonderful documentary that uh, VPM, Virginia Public Media and the Miller Center put together uh, called Statecraft about the Bush 41 foreign policy team. If ever there was an A-team that was put together, it was that foreign policy team. So I, I highly recommend uh, that documentary. Uh, but I would also say that a point made by the last panel was that, uh, and, and by the way, Vice President Dick Cheney has said this to us on a number of occasions for our Miller Center oral histories of the 41 administration. He said, we did, if he might, might say so himself, by terms of the president's golden resume and the foreign policy team was the A plus team, but they hadn't really all worked together as a team. So when the Panama crisis hit over Noriega, um, he said that they hadn't worked together as a team. Uh, by the time, obviously, the first Gulf War came around, they, they, were, they were ready and, and up and running completely as a well-oiled machine. But it does raise that question of maybe trying to do some tabletop exercises that happened at the end of the Bush 43 uh, era into the Obama era. So with that, I'll, I'll lay the, the groundwork historically and turn it back to you, Melody. Great. Thank you so much, Barbara. That's great, because you've also moved us forward historically. And John, I wanna to turn to you next and take us to 2008, 2009. The financial system was collapsing. We were involved in two wars. And simultaneously, President-elect President Obama 
knew that he wanted to move several big pieces of legislation, including healthcare. During the transition period and thinking about the policy process, you arranged for General Jones and Larry Summers, who were going to run the National Security Council and the NEC respectively, to operate and to coordinate as though they were in the White House. And I'm curious why you decided you that that was important and if in fact it, it turned out to be an effective strategy. Uh, thanks, Melody, and, and uh, thanks to the Miller Center and, and to the partnership for putting this, uh, this uh, program on. It's really terrific. Um, and I think this is a good transition from the last panel, but um, obviously I had had the experience of coming into the Clinton administration in its early days uh, and then uh, handed off uh, to Andy and Josh at the end as when I was the chief of staff. So I had reflected a lot on that. Uh, when I first was asked to uh, co-chair the transition and help run the transition, that was early in the summer. It was before the, fin the financial crisis had really uh, developed. Uh, I went out, I saw uh, then Senator Obama uh, in his home in Chicago. We talked it through and I told him that I thought one of the big mistakes that, that President Clinton had made was that he waited till the very end to pick his White House staff. He concentrated on picking his cabinet. And that I thought was understandable because he had been a governor where his cabinet was his staff. Uh, but I, I suggested that we reverse the process. I noticed that uh, Andy, uh, in talking about the transition to uh, Bush 43 made the same point, and that we picked the White House staff very early so that they could begin in the transition to prepare for uh, the uh, you know prospect of governing. As it turned out, when uh, Lehman Brothers did collapse, when the financial crisis really hit, uh, I think that was uh, reinforced the need get people who were being selected, the economic team, the national security team, who were selected relatively early uh, post-election to begin to work on what their plans, what their strategies uh, were in both the national security space with respect to Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, and certainly in the economic space. I don't think during that summer, when I first went and saw Josh Bolton in the White House, we were anticipating the kind of economic crisis that uh, unfolded uh, in the fall, but we went to work immediately. And I would say just one last word, and, and which is we've talked about the transition as though it's, it's sort of from the beginning to end. There are really two big phases, once before the election, once after the election. And before the election, and you know this, Melody, because we worked together on this, there was enough uh, you, the first rule of transitions is don't make any trouble for the campaign mm -hmm. so that you have to plan completely in a kind of a secure environment, in silence. Don't let anything dribble out that might uh, be a crisis for the campaign or force the campaign off its message. Uh, and so we had to develop that economic program uh, almost divorced from the campaign, but once the president was elected, came into office, it was critical that the people who were going to serve him uh, in those key, particularly in those key White House roles and the key cabinet roles, got together, uh, worked together, uh, practiced together, as Barbara said. And, uh, and in fact, uh, the Recovery Act was developed during the course uh, of that transition. Yeah. I mean, to your point, people often talk about not looking like you're measuring the draperies in the transition or in a pre-transition process while the campaign is still underway. John, just one more question before I want to turn to Steve. In, in that moment when we knew about the state of the economy, the dire state of the economy and had to address, and you talked about the Recovery Act, simultaneously, You've got a candidate who had been campaigning on a number of things that he wanted to accomplish for the country. In, in that moment and in the transition, how can a, a transition team think about its long-term priorities as they're also managing 
um, uh, an immediate uh, and near-term crisis? Well, clearly, uh, President, uh, then President-elect Obama had a lot on its plate. Uh, he, had, he had made some big promises to the American people. The first thing we ended up doing was trying to make a down payment on those promises uh, through the Recovery Act itself. So there were major investments in education, uh, in clean energy, uh, in putting people obviously back to work, doing the work that needed to get done for the country. And, uh, but you also had to simultaneously be thinking about what were the big promises made in the, in the, uh, in the course of the campaign. Number one was the uh, commitment to try to create healthcare for all. And the beginnings of the Affordable Care Act were really sketched out. The, uh, uh, the structures of, of how the White House and HHS would share the responsibility for developing that program uh, began. Uh, and that, I think, occupied uh, a tremendous amount of the president's time thinking about how he was going to get that in front of the Congress. And of course, he was successful uh, in passing that. But he also had, because of the economic crisis, he had the challenge of passing Dodd-Frank. Um, and the one that, that I, you know, I'm a big climate activist. So the one thing that I felt uh, ended up because of so much on the table, uh, the uh, climate change got sort of uh, delayed, at least in the Senate, and, uh, until the second year of the first term and we were unable to pass the uh, Waxman-Markey bill, which passed in the, in the House. Uh, but it, because of the sequencing, the delay, which you have to make decisions about, and you have to decide what your priorities are, got pushed off a little bit. Obviously, the president came back to it in the second term uh, when I was back in the White House with him. And uh, we got a lot done. But that was one regret that I have from those early days. And Steve, I want to turn to you now and then also bring Lisa into the conversation because there you are, you're the national security advisor. You, you know everything that we read in the paper and everything that we're not reading in the paper. Um, and so you have a strong sense or a very clear sense of all of the national security challenges facing the nation. And you are also preparing to hand off those issues to a new administration. I'm curious how that affected the way that you made decisions in the final days of the Bush administration. Well, thanks, and it's a, a privilege really to be part of this panel and part of this program today. Uh, you know, just a little perspective, I was on a transition from President Ford to President Carter, and to show you how different it was in the day, uh, then, all of the NSC staff under President Ford was let go. I was one of three or four people asked to stay on under the new administration. So when the new team came in, there was basically no staff in the National Security Council. Second thing is when I came into, into the office on the 21st of January uh, and turned to the safes in my office, which all the documents are held, all because the documents were all gone. Their presidential records, they left with the new administration. So when the new team started to fill in, there was no paper record in the White House. That's sort of where we started. I would call it a non-transition in terms of national security. Um, the, the, the contrast then was for, uh, for, the, for the Bush team to try to help the Obama team to be able to hit the ground running. And we did that in a variety of ways. And in the of course, the process was run by the chief of staff, Josh Bolton. But on the national security side, since it is a presidential transition, national security advisor is a bit kind of coordinator of the team. We encouraged the cabinet secretaries to meet with their successors individually, talk about their uh, departments, talk about the issues that were uh, at stake. Uh, we also had a series of briefings on substantive issues uh, in which the national security teams of the outgoing Bush administration and the incoming Obama administration met together, and we would talk through where we were on various uh, issues. Uh, uh, one of them, interestingly enough, was a Saturday morning session right before inauguration, where we were talking, supposed to talk about Iran, and that weekend, 
uh, we had gotten intelligence that there was a potential threat uh, to the inauguration itself. So that Saturday morning, we had the FBI director come in and brief both the existing and incoming national security teams about that protective threat, what we knew about it, what we were doing about it, and then had kind of a roundtable discussion. And we all thought, you know, we're the veterans, we're helping the new team uh, learn the ropes, so to speak. And Secretary Clinton then asked the most obvious question, which I had not even thought about, which is, well, what do we tell President Obama if he's in the middle of his inauguration speech and he hears a loud bomb, loud bang, a potential bomb attack or something like that? What does he do? Does he hunker down? Do we rush him off the stage? How does he want to handle that moment? Well, that was a very productive discussion, again, brought to the attention of the group by someone with great political experience, Secretary Clinton, uh, and we agreed on, on what, what would be briefed to the incoming president, what his options were. But that's the kind of coordination you want to have. There was also a reference to the fact that we did do, we thought we would do a, an exercise with the new team of how to respond to a terrorist incident. And initially we thought we would let them role play the roles, but then we decided they probably wouldn't want to do that, uh, being new to both the positions and new to working with each other. So we kind of stepped through a scenario and tried to explain to them what resources were available, what institutions were available, what kind of processes were in place, so that in the event of a terrorist attack, they would have in some sense had some familiarity. That's the kind of thing you can try to do in a transition, to put the new team in a position to, uh, as soon as they come in the door, uh, handle the responsibilities. As you say, the phone rings as soon as you walk in the office on the 21st of January. Yeah. And building on that, uh, thank you, thank you, Steve. Lisa, building on that, you've got the counterterrorism uh, responsibilities and also the Homeland Security coordination responsibilities. And in a second, I want to ask you about the tabletop exercise that you ran. But I wonder, one, what you might want to add to what Steve was just talking about. And also the question I think a lot of people are curious about, many people ask, what is it that you are saying in a transition period to a campaign um, and what is it that you're saying to a president-elect? What kind of national security um, and homeland security information are you providing? And who makes that decision? Sure. Well, thanks, Melody. And I'll round out the thank yous of my uh, fellow panelists to the Miller Center and to the partnership for holding this discussion. And it's really nice to be on the screen with uh, some, uh, some friends and, and former colleagues. Um, you know, I have been part of three different transitions in some way, shape, or form from uh, President Clinton to President George W. Bush, from uh, President Bush to President Obama, and then, of course, in 2016, uh, the Obama to Trump transition. Uh, and it, it is the importance of this kind of safe, effective, comprehensive handoff that Dennis and others talked about in the prior um, panel is just so critical from a from a national security and homeland security perspective, because frankly, and, I'm, and I suspect Steve would agree with me on this, it's a signal to our both to our allies about constancy and a signal to our adversaries uh, that this is not a time uh, in which to test us. Uh, so that's the first point I would make. Um, you know, in terms of the information flow and who's making those decisions, um, one thing to I think to note is. There's a lot that's governed to the extent it is governed by norms and convention. So for instance, in the period, uh, you know, John talked very uh, rightly about the two big phases of a transition before the election and after the election. And that's very, very relevant when we're talking about what information is shared. So before the election, this the notion of sharing information, sharing intelligence, it's entirely a product of convention. There's no dictate um, and kind of requirement to have these types of intelligence briefing and, and information sharing or national security information sharing. So uh, the campaign and the candidate um, gets information and gets a briefing about national security issues, indeed, including threats to the election itself, entirely by dint of the current administration, the sitting administration's willingness 
to share that information. So that's, I think it's an incredibly important point for people to be mindful of. Um, and in that case, obviously it's the president and it's the director of national intelligence setting up a process by which to brief the candidate um, prior to election day. After election day, there is a provision in, in a law that was passed after 9-11, the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act, that requires that the president-elect, although note, I, I would note, I don't think there's any provision for the vice president-elect uh, to get this information, but there is a, you know, a requirement that the president-elect get some form of the president's daily brief. And um, in my experience, that decision is really made by the intelligence professionals, the director of national intelligence will assign a briefer to the president-elect um, and give uh, the president-elect a kind of a, a steady set of briefings um, uh, in the transition period, similar to what the president uh, and his team is getting in that period. And so that's made, uh, and it might be, should be made by the intelligence professionals uh, to, so there is that, um, steady buildup of understanding what the what the threats are, what the state of big strategic issues is, um, so there can be that smooth handoff. The last point I'd make is, you know, I was in one of the transitions from uh, President Bush to President Obama. I was part of one of these briefings. I was then the chief of staff to uh, a formerly little-known uh, Washington. A lawyer named Bob Mueller when he was chief of staff at the FBI. And I remember quite distinctly going out to Chicago to be with uh, the, F the then FBI director, Bob Mueller, to provide the first briefing that President-elect Obama got on the homeland threats, the state of uh, terrorism threats and other threats to the homeland. And this was days after the election. Um, and it was incredibly productive session. It was very, very important that we immediately bring the president-elect up to date uh, on those uh, threats. And it is, I think, something that was very clear from then President Bush that needed to happen and that there needed to be that full information sharing and, and flow uh, so that there was an understanding of what the threat picture was. Um Lisa, I want to stay with you to talk a little bit more about the tabletop exercise. It's, as I said, it came up in the last panel. We heard it. It's come up a little bit here. It's been written about in the press. And as Dennis was saying in the last panel, that you and Susan Rice organized this tabletop exercise on Ebola. And I'm wondering, one, if you can describe in a bit more detail what that tabletop exercise looked like. I mean, as Steve was talking about the challenge for uh, people who necessarily in the beginning hadn't worked together to go through a role play type exercise. So what, what does it look like? And then I also want you to give us a sense of how you think this might work in an environment like the one we're in today when so much is happening remotely. And this was also a larger question for our panel once you're once you finish about how we can go through this transition period when many people are not physically in their offices. Well, what are the constraints? What things should flow normally? But Lisa, just start with the tabletop exercise. What is it? What does it look sure. like? Sure. So um, I think great good credit should go to President George W. Bush and his team, and Steve Hadley and his team. Uh, because what we did in 2017, just a few days before uh, the inauguration, was a direct outgrowth and a lesson learned from what the Obama, the incoming Obama team got from President Bush. Um, it, it has been talked about already that President Bush laid a clear um, direction for his team that there was going to be a professional and comprehensive handoff. And part of that was the tabletop exercise that Steve Hadley referenced. I was at that tabletop exercise again uh, with uh, then FBI Director Bob Mueller. And I remember being in that room as the outgoing national security team from uh, President Bush's administration sat literally side by side and shoulder to shoulder with their incoming counterparts or designees um, from the incoming Obama administration and walked through a set of scenarios and talked through the issues that Steve laid out. And to a person, I think 
people felt like that was an incredibly useful, I know this was the view of the incoming Obama team, was incredibly useful, productive, uh, and well-run session. Fast forward uh, eight years, I am now the Homeland Security Advisor to President Obama, and we're discussing the transition, and President Obama was very clear in his direction that one of the best things he experienced, and, and he was very, very thankful to President Bush and his team for having that comprehensive and professional transition. He said, that was a really high bar, but let's exceed it. Um, and that was our direction. And my job in that transition was to build out exactly what that uh, tabletop would be. So I knew even if we hadn't gotten the direction uh, from President Obama, that we were going to apply that same tabletop exercise. And so what we did is we said, all right, what should be the set of issues that we think we really want to relay to the incoming team that they need to be thinking about? So uh, I sat down with my team of mostly career national security and homeland security uh, professionals drawn from across uh, the federal government said, what are the scenarios that we want to discuss with the incoming team? And we chose a, a terrorism scenario, a cyber scenario, a, a hurricane, and uh, we made especially sure to include a pandemic scenario. This is because we knew that a, the incoming team was going to face some form of emerging infectious disease uh, as a crisis because we had experienced H1N1, of course, and then Ebola, uh, so it stood to reason that this would happen. And of course, the intelligence community had been saying for several years running that emerging infectious disease and the danger of a potential pandemic is something uh, that was very, very high on the worldwide threat assessment. So we included a pandemic scenario. It was a, the scenario was a novel strain of flu. Um, and we put that in the scenario planning and we, and we had just like the Bush administration did for the Obama team, we had the incoming designees, national security and homeland security officials sitting literally next to their counterparts, walking through uh, these, these sets of scenarios. And um, I asked my then incoming successor, Tom Bossert, who uh, President Trump had asked to succeed me as homeland security advisor, I asked him to basically co-chair it with me, to walk through these scenarios with the incoming team. And it was something that we knew we were going to do and we knew we had to do because it was a, a virtual certainty that this set of issues would turn up in some form for the new team. And building on that and just using that as an example, but there are so many other ways that uh, uh, the incumbent administration and a new incoming administration have to work together. And I'm curious, and this is a question from one of the audience members about the impact of teleworking, about the, we're taking precautions because of COVID-19, what impact might that have on a transition? And I'm, I'll, I'll toss that out to the panel for anyone that, that wants to jump in first, jump ball. <laughs> I was just going to say a couple things. Well, one of the things you need to do, and again, um, you're going to have to, initially the new team is going to have to rely on the existing staff. So when in the transition to the Obama administration, they made clear that they wanted the senior people on the NSC staff to leave, the senior directors to leave. But we had therefore ensured that there was an existing director who was going to be running each of the respective offices and that you can do now and that gives the new team someone to to deal with and turn to from the get-go as soon as they come in i think one of the problems will be uh, access to documents the other thing we said was sure these are presidential records they'll disappear but we asked each of these directors who were running these offices in the transition period, in the early days of the Obama administration, make copies of the documents you're gonna need in order to do your job. That may be a little bit harder to do in terms of a virtual environment. A uh, third thing we did was uh, we, in the, in the months running up to the election and after, I was accumulating a list of, of initiatives that were underway that were decisions that the Bush administration could take 
but were also additions that we could hold over to the Obama administration. And so one of the things uh, I did was I took these stacks of issues and, 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 and questions and sat down with Tom Donlan and Jim Jones, who was then a national security advisor, and went through one by one and said, look, do you want us to take this action? Is this something that you want us to hold on for the new administration? And then we took the results of that review to our respective presidents and got, uh, got the sign off. So a lot of that you can do even in a virtual environment. The trick will be access to files and records. That's going to be more difficult in a, in a COVID-19 environment. But the people-to-people -people part of it, I think, is manageable through the Zoom tools and the other that are available. John, anything you want to? Yeah, add well, to of course. I mean, Steve sort of alluded to this, but you're not doing classified briefings on Zoom, <laughs> you know. So that lay that gives a whole other layer and dimension uh, of uh, of difficulty uh, to operate in a classified environment uh, when uh, you know homes haven't been built for that. Uh, the uh, comms are uh, directly related to that. But I think the last panel really hit on the biggest issue, which is building the teamwork that's necessary uh, to be able to uh, create a culture that's going to be going to work together uh, and work together effectively right right from the get-go. We've all gotten used to working uh, remotely over the last uh, several months, uh, and I think that uh, there's going to have to be a lot of attention given by the leaders who are either uh, who are there now and are, are moving forward if, if uh, President Trump is reelected and we wish him well. Uh, but you also, if there's a new incoming team creating that culture inside uh, the White House and an administration, it's just going to be more challenging operating remotely. Uh, eventually, that I think they'll be physically in the office as we see you know, most of the people, I guess, uh, in the current administration physically in the office. That has its own challenges. Um, but I think that the, I think it's going to be hardest on the national security team, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. Okay. I am, a couple other issues. I'm, I'm watching our clock and there's so much to talk about here. I want to ask a question now about the legislative branch. I mean, obviously, we've been focusing on the executive branch, um, incoming administration, or fifth year um, transition for an existing administration. But one of the audience members I know is thinking about this as well. What role for the legislative branch in all this? Um, how can a, a, the legislative branch also help facilitate the peaceful transfer of power to ease and improve a transition? Um, so I'm curious about that. And also in doing that, I don't know, Barbara, if there also uh, there's a historical context for this where the Congress has been better or worse, more helpful than not, um, that you might also want to add to this. But well, I'll, I'll take a, a, right. I'll, I'll take a stab uh, at that. Um, well, one way I think to look at it is through the lens of 2000. And first of all, this I think our nonpartisan uh, conversation today through these panels <clears throat> with people who have participated in these presidencies as all of my fellow panelists have uh, on, from different sides of the aisle. Uh, but to show that bipartisanship and interpartisanship can happen and can make our country better. Uh, so from Bush 43 to Obama, you know, we've talked about that. And then from Obama to Trump, uh, that the view is the, the best transitions are best for our country. And so it is best that they are, uh, I guess I should say be best. They are best uh, if they are bipartisan and interpartisan and people are working as teams across party lines. Uh, so I wanted to mention uh, something that Melody will know quite a bit about because she she came through the uh, the staff process of Edward Kennedy uh, on the Hill and he was noted for uh, not only having the best staff, uh, but then sending them on into other positions. And so then Melody went on to, to the White House uh, for President Obama and was involved in the transition. But I bring up Senator Kennedy because uh, it was the case that he reached out to President Bush 43 and Bush 43 reached out to him because uh, President 
George W. Bush coming from the governorship of Texas had worked in a bipartisan way in Texas uh, with members of the legislature there. So he had a, a, a pattern and practice of doing that, uh, as did Edward Kennedy. And he's, he's noted, I think, certainly by those who opposed him as, as having been partisan, but he could be bipartisan and maybe even nonpartisan when it was towards a common legislative goal. And for him and, and Bush 43, it was no child left behind. It was education reform. And so President Bush 43 invited Senator Kennedy and his family down to the White House uh, within a few days of the inauguration uh, in 2001. And, and we need to think back at how divided our country was, the vitriol of the Bush v. Gore contest, the uncertainty that went on for so many days that obviously had an impact uh, on the transition. But but what does Bush 43 do but reach out to Senator Kennedy, invite him and his family down for a, a nice supper at the White House, and then to watch at that time the new movie, 13 Days, about the Cuban Missile Crisis and about Senator Kennedy's brother, President Kennedy. And in turn, if you go to the library uh, at SMU, the George W. Bush Library, you will see a handwritten thank you note uh, for which Senator Kennedy was always very famous. I think he got that from his mother. Always write a thank you note. He wrote a lovely handwritten thank you note uh, to the president, to George W. Bush, thanking him for inviting him and his family to the White House to see that movie. And then he said at the end, I, I, I know that we'll have differences, but I hope on education and health care, uh, we'll find common ground and I'll be down at the White House for some bill signings. And uh, if that's not a pattern that, that we need to follow now, I, I don't know what is. Melody, I, I would just add that uh, I think another thing the legislature can do is um, some of following the pattern of some of what they've already done, which is memorialize and instantiate in statute um, best practices. So we have mm -hmm. the Transition Act that was passed after 9-11 to instantiate some of the best practices that um, the Bush administration um, did do, right? So this, this requirement for tabletop exercises and the sharing of this type of information is now in that statute. So building on lessons learned and memorializing them and putting them in a statute can, I think, be a very, very helpful um, role for the legislature for future transitions. I would also I, mention something uh, John Podesta, Podesta mentioned. The most important thing that the Congress, particularly the Senate, can do is speed through the confirmations of the uh, cabinet officials for the new president. That is clearly the most important they do. Get the president's team in place so the president can start their administration. And I would just add one more to the, to the list, which is, of course, the Congress is sworn in on January 3rd. They uh, receive the votes of the Electoral College on January 6th. They begin working before January 20th. And we're talking about transitions in the time of crisis. During that period of time uh, in 2009, the, there was a good deal of work being done by the transition with the Congress to deal with the simultaneous economic crises that were uh, befalling the country. We worked to save the auto industry, uh, to implement TARP, uh, to uh, build that Recovery Act that got people working again. We were losing 500,000 jobs a month. If uh, Vice President Biden is elected, as I hope he will be, they, uh, and they will have an opportunity to try to do, I think, simultaneously tackle the, environment, the uh, economic crisis and really work to put in place their strategy for dealing with the COVID-19 crisis. Because the economic crisis, I think, uh, can't really be resolved until we finally resolve uh, the pandemic crisis. So the Congress has a vital role to play. And those conversations will start taking place in December, in January. And, uh, you know, as you remember, Melody, the Recovery Act was passed in the first week of February. So the, the, uh, that, uh, you know, and Barbara's calling out President, uh, uh, sorry, Senator Kennedy's work with, with the 
president that led to No Child Left Behind and, and some other legislation that they worked on together is a model for how people can begin right from the get-go to say, can we cooperate on what? What can we move? Obviously, the constellation of the Congress is, is also up for grabs in this election. With who's going to control the Senate uh, will be resolved. But once that's known, you have to begin working um, uh, right off the bat to basically implement a, a program as you're coming into office. I, I, as we're talking about working across the aisle and, and bipartisanship, what can get accomplished, I want to ask, and this is probably the final couple of questions, a question about innovation. And from maybe a couple of different perspectives. One, how do we create, or how does a transition team, a new administration or year five administration create a culture of innovation? And when we're thinking about, and it, it could be an incoming administration, it could be changes in personnel in a year five, um, what we've seen in, in the, or read in the paper that Bill Antholis and Dave Marchek wrote, which you, if people haven't read it, I highly recommend it um, to them. In terms of personnel, different presidents have approached this in different ways. I mean, there's a, the team of rivals approach. Um, there's the literal team of rivals approach of bringing in people from an opposing party into your administration, ways to shake up the thinking, ways to expand, broaden the aperture. Um, in terms of ideas to create opportunities for innovation. I'm curious, A, what ways do you think we might approach innovation? And B, is it even imaginable at this point, given the polarization and the, the vitriol that exists, uh, that we might have people from different parties or even different wings of the same party um, that are coming into an administration or a year five? And I think you know you're already seeing, to your last point, a um, a kind of sense of unity amongst the Democratic Party in terms of drawing on the diversity and the expertise and the ideas from um, the different wings of the Democratic Party. I think that's evident in a lot of what we've seen um, in the campaign and certainly in the development of uh, of a bunch of Vice President Biden's um, approaches and, and positions and, and platform. Uh, on the question of innovation uh, more broadly, you know, I, I think there needs to be a, a sense that um, a, and a reminder and people in government should never forget that they are not the sole source of wisdom uh, on a set of issues. And so having a productive way of collaborating and getting information from the private sector um, to, you know, to draw upon innovative ideas outside of government, bring those perspectives to the table, I think is absolutely invaluable. You know, it would point to things that the Obama administration did with the creation of the U.S. Digital Service um, and, you know, steps like that to try and bring innovative um, and kind of cutting edge talent into across um, agencies uh, to deal uh, on the digital side of things. You know, those types of practices should, should continue. Yeah. I want to throw and the ball here on this to John Podesta for just a minute, John. I want to invite you in on this one because I think innovation is great, but you know there are a lot of ideas out there. I think the trick is figuring out politically what are the ideas whose time has come and are saleable and then sequencing them. So I will give you a little criticism of the Bush administration on the domestic side for which I was not responsible, so it's easy for me. Uh, we led on social security reform with uh, giving people uh, access to the stock market, whereas we probably should have led with solvency. And we probably should have done immigration first before we did social security reform because we did immigration reform too close to an election. So, you know, part of it is new ideas and innovations, but part of it is having a political strategy. What ideas are the ones that our time has come? How do you build the coalition and what's the priority? And the master at that, in my view, is John Podesta. So, John, tell us how you do it. <laughs> well, I was going to take this conversation in a slightly different direction, which is I think presidents usually don't think about performance nearly enough. And the, and the public, quite frankly, is skeptical about whether government can't actually deliver. One of the things I think Bill Clinton did at the beginning 
uh, in putting uh, Al Gore in charge of the reinventing government initiative was consciously focused on rebuilding trust in government. And the vice president de deserves a lot of credit for being um, able to do that and have the American people have the sense that government was delivering. And I think that you saw that in public attitude about their faith in the ability for government to deliver. So I would advise the, the administration, whoever's leading it, to pay more attention to that. Uh, and again, I think that uh, one of the things that, because I'm paying attention to this campaign, that the vice president has done is woven a story together about the need to simultaneously attack the pandemic crisis, the economic crisis, uh, the racial justice crisis, and the climate crisis. That takes huge amount of coordination at the White House level, a, 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 a top of mind strategy. But in the end of the day, it really means implementation, implementation, implementation. That's got to be number one. Well, with our last one minute and 45 seconds, um, I'm just curious what- Go to Barbara. Um, <laughs> You're right, right. Barbara, give us some history. But just no matter who wins the election, what you think the biggest challenge is for a transition and you know barbara you can obviously put that in historical context or what you've heard through <laughs> history. right well um, if, if you are turning to me may i offer this uh and it is kind it is a bit of, of bipartisanship as well because it is uh an interview that we did russell riley and i for the bush 43 project but it was with dick gephardt uh who was um the house minority leader during bush 43 and this is uh, after 9-11, and he's speaking uh, to uh, the Pentagon is still smoking, and he's speaking to the president. And he says, I said, Mr. President, the most important thing now is that we all trust one another. This is about life and death. Our first responsibility is to keep the people safe. We failed. We all failed, and we have to do better. The only way I know politics intrudes in everything that happens here as it should, but this we have to keep politics out. We cannot play politics with this. We have to do whatever we can to do the right things to keep the country safe and to avoid anything like this happening again. Um, it obviously was related to terrorism, but uh, I certainly think now in this matter of life and death with COVID, um, that's what we have to keep our eye on On that. Well, well said. thank you for doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I have thoroughly enjoyed being in conversation with you all. Could do it for another for another hour. Thank you so much um, for sharing your expertise. If you like Transition Lab, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.